All right, everybody, before we get started for today's episode, if you guys haven't heard yet, we're doing what we call the Crypto Hedge Fund Summit, and this is June 25th to June 26th. It's completely free. So before you fast forward through this ad, go to CryptoHedgeFundSummit.com and you can sign up for free. We interviewed over 35 hedge fund managers and investors, CEOs, founders, just brilliant, brilliant investing minds. And we got a bunch of nuggets of wisdom and they're all for you, all for free. And you could watch it from the comfort of your own home. Recording all these interviews was a very eye-opening experience for me. I feel at least three times smarter than I was before. I listen to all these intelligent people that have decades of experience more than I do and tremendous analytics tools and quants at their disposal that normal guys like us don't. Go to CryptoHedgeFundSummit.com and get your free ticket today. All right, all you good citizens of Crypt Nation, it is your hosts, Bryce and Pizza Mine, coming at you from San Diego on lockdown. You know, there are moments in my life when I just wonder if I've completely wasted it. Um, not in general, like generally in my life, like I'm obviously very happy. I mean, I'm the co-host of Crypto 101 podcast. That's something I would never sell or get rid of for anything. Um, but there are moments. There are moments where, I'm, you know, I should be sitting out at the beach or hanging out with my friends or calling my dad or my aunt or something. But instead, I'm sitting watching Bitcoin range between... 10 to $30 in an hour, just wondering when this candle's going to explode. You've lost your marbles. That's what I, you have. I've lost my marbles. I've lost some of my money, and I'm desperately waiting for the Bitcoin having pump. I'm losing sleep, but it really got me thinking, you know, when you're wasting your life, you really want to do something that matters. You only have one life as far as I know, at least currently, my allotment is only one. I have not found any magic mushrooms that can make me come back to life yet. But if you're going to live here on this planet, you want to do something that really, really matters. And our guest with us today is living his whole life, every moment, and making every moment count. So with us here today, we have Sinjin David Young from the International Blockchain Monetary Reserve. David, welcome to Crypto 101. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. You are doing something super cool for the Southeast Asia banking market that I've never seen before. Of all the copycat projects that come and go in crypto, this is not one of them. Give us a high-level overview, one or two sentences. What exactly is the International Blockchain Monetary Reserve? Yeah, in a nutshell, it's the um, IMF of crypto. So we're we're really bottom-up focused towards the individual and specifically for the urban working poor and emerging markets. Tell us what the IMF is. Uh, the International Monetary Fund that was set up after World War II. Um, and it was basically to create kind of stability in these developing markets post uh, World War II. And it's been around and every single major international uh, financial crisis where it was uh, 1997 in um, Asia or in Europe or things like that, they just jump in especially for Africa and emerging countries, but it's always uh, top down. So they deal with the governments directly. Whereas for us, you know, we're really going bottom up, like directly to the individual themselves. And so that's where the big difference is. And part of that is that we're focusing on creating also a new concept of uh, a micro asset. And it's a, basically a debt free source of capital for entrepreneurial uh, investment in uh, these emerging markets. 
Very interesting. Um, you, what you kind of said was interesting. It sounds like a good history lesson. You, you mentioned after World War II, they had to, you know, the IMF was created for some reason. And that reason was to restructure the world, really, right? I mean, right. restructure debt and reparations and all that kind of stuff. So could you kind of like, I don't know if, I don't know if you're a history nut, but like walk us through maybe a little bit of like what that life was like. And after the, after the war and how the IMF solved this problem. And also like, what are, what problems are they tasked with today? Um, I guess like in really broad strokes, um, what they learned after world war two was when you have, uh, you know, at the end of world war one, where they have these war reparations on Germany and the effect that it had, um, then, you know, the United States came together and said, okay, we'll have the, the Marshall plan and then we're going to help really redevelop, uh, these countries. And part of this is the IMF coming in and saying, okay, look, um, we're going to help structure these countries. And so they're going to develop um, in a way where, you know, there's transparency, there's uh, proper financial systems in place. And what the IMF has been tasked with in, you know, this kind of post-World War II era um, is creating these open financial markets. And of course, you know, to the end of this is there you know, push towards democratizing these markets. And the theory that if countries are economically stable, then that creates a level of stability globally, like on a political or geopolitical level. And basically, whenever there is a, a problem in the international market where, you know, because of globalization, these, these markets are so interconnected, um, they literally come in and they say, okay, look, you have these debts, you might default, um, this is going to bring down this entire region, whether it's Latin America or Southeast Asia or Asia. And here's a payment plan and we will give you this money. Uh, but this is what you need to be more structured. This is how you have to fix your kind of corporate governance, so on and so forth. So they're uh, an agency that really lends itself to, how do I say, not just promoting uh, financial markets, but creating and supporting that stability. Uh, but, you know, it's it's totally top down. And so the one thing that IMF, um, doesn't really address is the livelihood of the people in the country that they're helping support. Because ultimately, you know, you assume that if a, if an agency like the IMF comes in and they're supporting, you know, your infrastructure, your health, your financial market, so on and so forth, that that's going to have a real trickle down effect. But the thing about it is, is what people, I guess, we kind of ignore, especially in developed countries, is that you know, we used to call like the underdeveloped world, the, the third world, and then we call them developing markets, and then we call them emerging markets. And, you know, this terminology has been around since, you know, the end of World War II. And like, how long are these like markets supposed to stay developing or emerging? And so there's a kind of weakness there where this top down approach hasn't really increased the um, I would say the standard of living for the majority of people in these emerging markets, because if it did, they wouldn't be emerging markets any longer. And so that's something that we're trying to address here. That's a great point. I mean, if a system has been in place since the end of World War II and people are still suffering through the same kind of poverty and danger and, you know, health uh, or lack of healthcare access or banking access, at some point you got to cut the cord and do something different. So what are you guys doing at the International Blockchain Monetary Reserve that is different from the IMF? I think more than anything else, and it's it's, it's interesting because you have uh, the COVID-19 situation right now where the entire global economy is on lockdown, right? And even here in the United States, where it's the richest country in the entire world, you have it on lockdown. And 
there's um there was one presidential candidate on the Democratic side. His name was Andrew Yang, and um, you know eventually he had dropped out of the the running, but he had uh, really pushed forth this thing called a UBI, uh, Universal Basic Income. He called it the Freedom Dividend. And shortly after the lockdown occurred, all the cracks in the system where uh, people only really had enough savings for like a month or less than a month um, started to appear. And he says, you know, uh, you know, I was talking about automation, but I should have been talking about a pandemic to make people really understand how critical uh, UBI is. And the entire thing about UBI, universal basic income, is that, you know, everyone gets a thousand or two thousand dollars a month, and as a, a you know, kind of base income for everybody. Now, I'm not supporting uh, UBI particularly, but in the terms of actually getting aid directly to individuals, um, you know, this is where uh, something that is decentralized uh, that doesn't have any intermediaries can really be effective and can be, um, you know, noted and, and seen. Because if you see, like in the United States right now, you have these small business loans uh, that were given out. Uh, but all the people who had established banking relationships at the big banks, public companies, franchises, big corporations, they were able to get the loans first. Whereas the people who were not as organized, who were not established in the system, who really needed them as small businesses, were not able to get access. And so in the same way, at an even more extreme level, the people that we're dealing with are the urban working poor. And, and these people are basically living not month to month. They're living like day to day. And they're pretty much out of the system. But in Southeast Asia, amazingly enough, the mobile and the internet infrastructure is really there. I mean, you can buy a smartphone for about $100 there that is you know, made in China, but has Android on it, so on and so forth. And what we're trying to do is directly address the individuals where we are able to provide for them, um, not an airdrop, but access to some form of capital. And the way that we've developed this kind of capital, we call it a micro asset um, rather than a micro loan. And what we're trying to do is just basically get in the hands, get people to actually have capital, long-term capital or assets uh, in their hands. And so that's the real difference between how we're approaching it, where we're directly going to the individual rather than trying to go through multiple agencies and so on and so forth. Because you think the UN and all these NGOs are great things. UNICEF, they are. They have the same type of overhead that every single centralized organization does have. They have staff they need to pay, so on and so forth. Um, they have procurement costs. And a lot of times, like, that money that you donate or you give, number one is, it's, it's a finite amount of money. You, know, you donate it, you think about it, you do it, and then it's there and it's dispersed and then it's done. And the other part of it is that by the time it gets to the individual, there's all this criteria for them. And, you know, it gets cut because it needs to get cut because that's the way the operation runs. But for us, we're in the blockchain space. You know, for us, we saw the technology that was available and the fact that um, you could go directly to the individual. And that just really sparked our approach. It sounds like this system would be a great solution for the payment protection plan or something like that, um, where, you know, the 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 government was having a really hard time sending checks out efficiently to everybody or, you know, doing the direct deposit and the banks weren't ready, but the government was, and then it was just kind of chaotic, but it sounds like your system is built to, in times of need, distribute funds and allocate capital across societies correctly. And is that correct me if I'm wrong? Um, I think if that's an inherent part of cryptocurrencies, which are, 
you know, on a, on a public, you know, decentralized network that's stable. And so that's not, um, how do I say, um, just specifically for us. And I think that's the discussion where the conversation where central bank digital currencies have really come to the forefront saying that, you know, we could have been more efficient had, you know, we had a central bank digital currency, the U.S. dollar equivalent. For us, we're much the same way, I think, in a broader stroke that, you know, it is definitely possible to address the individual directly. And I think that's the kind of conversation or that's the kind of more, not necessarily trickle up effect, because, you know, we talk about the existing banking system or the existing uh, financial markets, they work. I mean, of course, this is a very time of uh, extreme stress and so on and so forth. For the most part, if you have a stable, non-corrupt government with transparency, these things work. I mean, they're still excluding the, the, you know, the very vulnerable or the lower socioeconomic classes, right? But the ones that are already, quote unquote, unbanked, and people are trying to bank them into a current system, there's a reason why they're unbanked in the very first place. And, and it's because the system just they just don't qualify. You can't just give someone access and suddenly they're qualified and they're no longer unbanked because they have, they have $5 in their ATM, but the ATM fee is still a dollar, right? And it's 20, that's literally a 20% uh, fee for them, right? Not to mention like, you know, the, the monthly fees. Um, for us, I think when we looked at what decentralization could actually happen is that we could actually create value from creating this kind of decentralized um, by creating a decentralized network. And the one that we chose was creating a decentralized information network that would report on basically what was going on in emerging markets in these urban slums where there's no data and gathering that data and um, creating transparency there um, and then rewarding the reporting of that data. And that's, you know, the approach that we took as well because the nature of cryptocurrencies is that it can create this new kind of system, which is inclusive because it's just by its nature inclusive. I mean, a decentralized network doesn't exist unless it's inclusive. And so, you know, that's really the approach. But this project itself, I think it took about two and a half years to really get off the ground. It took me about two years to write white, uh, write the white paper. It was like, ended up being like 141 pages. So, wow. That's yeah. quite, that's quite the tome. Uh, yeah. I, I'm, cu- I'm curious, uh, <laughs> At what stage of development is the the business in or the organization? Okay, so um, we have listed ARCC, uh, but we're entirely self-funded. But we ended up getting an um, investment to support the reserve itself. So it's Asia Reserve Currency Coin. ARCC is the, the micro asset that we launched. And we have a full team. We have three dev teams. Uh, one is uh, co-development with Algorand in Boston. And then we have another Boston dev team. And then we have um, another dev team in uh, Singapore. And we're simultaneously doing three devs at the same time. Uh, One is a microfinance um, platform, which also is that decentralized information network I was mentioning before. Um, And that's being done with Algorand. And then we have two other projects. One is um, a really cool project called Messe, uh, Micro Equity Stock Exchange, where we take uh, U.S like FANG stocks, and then we've tokenized them into uh, one ten-thousandth of an increment. And like a stable coin, we're holding the actual asset, but we're going to uh, basically have a micro exchange where, let's say for Tesla, I don't know what the price is right now, but I, I assume it's somewhere like 700. 
at one ten thousandth of a of a share at seven cents. But if Tesla keeps its uh, terror on going, uh, imagine like where in the world could you have seven cents and make ten percent on it, whether it's annually or whatever? You, you can't, right? And I think uh, that's one project we're really um, happy about, and we're in co-development uh, there as well. And then we have um, looks awesome. Yeah, we have another project that's ongoing as well. It's called uh, Algolado.io. We're in development right now with our Boston team, and what that is, it's uh, basically a risk-free lottery. And um, Algorand provides it's like pool together. Rewards. It's like pool together, but it's going to be a little bit different. It's um, it's going to have a pool together element, but it's also going to have like a like a six forty nine actual jackpot, which we are going to also back as well. So we have something like uh, 12,000, sorry, 12 million, 13 million algos. I have to check the exact number. Um, so we have a lot of algos in our reserve, which the staking rewards we're going to put towards a jackpot. But that is just basically to introduce people and onboard them to what cryptocurrencies are and completely be risk-free. It's not uh, in a competition or a way to get into the lottery market. I mean, the actual amounts will be quite small, but it's a way for us to provide another service and specifically to emerging markets. Talk about can... the talk about the idea behind a risk-free lottery. Okay, so um, I'm from gaming. So I used to be the regional director of Poker Stars in Asia uh, from 2007 to 2010. And um, I know poker well, and I know gaming really well. I actually legalized poker in Macau. So before me, it wasn't legal. And then after me, we had worked on it. And <laughs> so I know everything about online gaming, actually online casinos, sports betting, so on and so forth. But, you know, the biggest thing is the biggest gaming product actually in the world that people don't think is a gaming product is lotteries. Lotteries are basically most of them around the world are nationalized. So they're not private lotteries. And... Um, they're not very transparent. So when you have a lottery and let's say it's a 649 draw, so six numbers, 49, you don't actually know what the number of participants are. They're not very transparent on that, right? But the reality is, you know, you have profit margins anywhere between 30 to 50%. But what's amazing about lotteries are that it, it serves a really good social purpose because it's extremely accessible. The amount that you put in and the amount that you could win is so great and even though you have a higher chance of getting struck by lightning, you know, like even like every single day you got a chance and you could add it up, getting struck by lightning, you still have more of a chance by getting hit by lightning almost every day of mm. the year than winning the lottery. But um, it creates a kind of accessible game that people can you know look forward to. And you know it does change the lives of one or two people like every week. And so in a risk-free lottery though, or any lottery, it's still actually gaming. Right. So, yeah. you know, they, they've done such a great marketing thing where it's not gaming, but it, it is gaming. So for us in in cryptocurrencies right now, we have like that ability to do staking. And depending on which you know protocol you're in, the staking can either be coming out of a pool or it could be part of the consensus mechanism. Right. The rewards. And when you do a risk free uh, lottery, this was actually set up by the banks, I believe, in the 1970s, where like people who had small savings accounts and they were not doing anything with their interest, they wanted to set something up for them. Now in the US, it's not considered um, fully regulated. In some states, it's outright banned. But I yeah. think for cryptocurrencies, considering how volatile it is, even you holding or buying cryptocurrencies, it was a kind of 
um, investment risk, if I could say that, right? Yes. And in terms of what the uses of it are, especially as we get into proof of stake, we're still not there yet with these killer apps and so forth. And so for us, the algo lottery is just a way for us to introduce people to it, understand what staking is, and to see their rewards in action without taking any risk at all from their initial purchase of, of the capital. And the capital stays there as, as a cryptocurrency. Um, so I think it's a great approach. Uh, I think the Pool to Together team has done a great job as well. We were actually working on it months back as well, uh, conceptually. And uh, you know we didn't know about Pool Together until they actually uh, made a press release about it and so on and so forth. So you know we were very impressed as well. And that actually gave us confidence to move forward with our project as well. And just one more reminder, if you want to know what smart money is, you have to attend the Crypto Hedge Fund Summit. Sign up at CryptoHedgeFundSummit.com. We're talking with some of the brightest minds in this space about what smart money is, what they do, and how to follow it. If you're even halfway serious about investing in crypto, this is a can't-miss event. That's exactly right, guys. We speak with investing professionals, conducted a ton of interviews, and they're all yours for free. All you got to do is sign up for a free ticket, right? CryptoHedgeFundSummit.com. It's going to be a lot of fun, guys. We hope to see you guys there. There's so much there that I want to really unpack before we continue to move forward. Um, you mentioned you have a micro equi equities exchange. That is revolutionary. That's one of the coolest things, one of the craziest things that just might actually work towards actually having wealth trickle down to the people that need it the most. Is this something that is accessible worldwide or is it restricted to only certain regions? It's going to be only accessible to certain regions and we're in like the kind of beta setup for it. So the exchange itself is not too hard to set up and the tokens and the assets are already being created. So if you go to, you know, uh, my algo explorer, algoexplorer.com, you can actually find it. Or if you download the Algorand wallet, if you just check out assets, I think you'll be able to see all the assets we've done and it'll be like M slash dash Tesla or M dash like uh ms interesting F, whatever yeah so well, it's all done um we're trying to figure out which target market we're going to look at uh and we've already made some rules on it like because it's being backed by the asset itself so if anyone actually acquired all ten thousand shares we would give them the the stock itself number mm -hmm. one um number two is that uh we're not going to let it trade uh 30 percent higher or lower than the actual uh, divisible price because hmm. we don't want to turn this into like a speculative, like crazy uh, micro <laughs> gambling. No, that, that's brilliant market. Yeah, um, so we're just in talks with uh, one um, major um, white label provider, and the reason why we're in talks with them is because every single country has its own different regulatory body. So right. when we launched Messi initially, it's really more of a proof of concept to show people. Here it is, um, but we're not going to launch it in any particular market to begin with. Uh, rather, we're going to use it as proof of concept to show countries and say, look, this is something that you can put in and we will get the regulatory side done. Um, so whether it's stocks within your country or whether it's U.S. tech-based stocks, things that are that can be divided into one ten thousandth that, that have liquidity. Um, and here you go. And then create a kind of cloud um, exchange where... You know, basically anyone where we can get like the regulatory approval for can buy into these either U.S. tech stocks or European tech stocks, these really high growth stocks where, you know, 10 cents makes a difference. 
right? Yeah. And I, I think this really comes down to one thing is that what people don't realize is that when you're in an emerging market, it's impossible to save money. It's always a short-term survival. Mm -hmm. And so when you're in this kind of mindset that you just want to like uh, survive or you only have to survive, then you can't really create any assets or investments. It just doesn't work that way. And then people will say, well, I go to like Thailand, I go to like Vietnam, I go to Philippines or Indonesia. And I see people watching around with cell phones or they're drinking like lattes from Starbucks and so on and so forth. Or they're like the movies are packed when you go to India. And there's this book called Poor Economics, and it was written by two MIT professors. They just won the Nobel Economic Prize this year, but the book itself, Poor Economics, was written in 2006. And they basically highlight this, this kind of paradoxical thing where when your life is so shitty, right, it's these small consumer purchases that make your life fulfilling because that's all you can really have are these short-term, really short-term kind of fulfillment of, you know, your life. Whereas then you go back to your shitty life and your daily thing to survive. And so I think for this particular project, what we wanted to do was like, even when we first launch, we basically want to just give out, you know, 20,000 of these stocks, these micro stocks to just show them that, yes, you know, even this small amount can work um, and you can make these profits because when you're, let's say you only have $10 and someone says, Hey, you know what? I'll give you hundred percent interest annual on it. And you're like, this is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, well, that's only gonna be twenty dollars. It's not um, something that you know you can really conceptualize as a lot of money, right? Because you know capital needs capital to really grow. But in this case, I think if we can like link them to what the rest of the world is doing, because it's it really boggles my mind. It's like twenty twenty. Our like cell phones have enough power to like send a guy to the moon, and yet 
you know, this technology, which is completely accessible on a commercial side, hasn't really, you know, solved some really basic things where like, you know, you don't have running water, you don't have this kind of infrastructure development. People are living as if it's the 1930s. And I think it's just completely inexcusable. And I think it's a matter of exposure. So once we can get people exposed that this technology is there, you can actually make interest. Capital does actually work, not just, you know, you're looking at like a lot of microfinance organizations that are like really inwardly focused and they say, okay, let's get all these ladies to do handicrafts. That's great. I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, bagging on handicrafts and scarves and stuff like that. But what if we got these ladies to be investing in U.S. tech equities? Right. That's the main point right there. Yeah. Yeah, that exposure and learning about what these technologies are and like having their children to really dream or parents to really support that and 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 really look beyond these slums. Cause it's it's really crazy because in these emerging markets, you have these slums which are right beside like five-star hotels, right? I mean, they, they see it, but they're not touching it. So they think it's just far away. And I, I want it, I want them to touch it. I want them to grab a hold of it. Yeah. Because there's no reason they they shouldn't be. Absolutely. No, I, I'm super bullish on that entire idea right there of being able to get all these uh, micro equities in the hands of everybody. Uh, everybody in the world should be able to have exposure to uh, you know the same investment vehicles that the average American does or the average um, you know Hong Kong citizen. So I, I think that's really cool. Um, it, it, I want to hop over to our, our discussion on Algorand. Um, you yep. are in particular, you know, quite an expert. You're building on Algorand. What makes it special? Why'd you choose it? Tell us a little bit about the team. Cause honestly, this is the first time that we've talked about Algorand, uh, in depth on our, on our podcast. So give us the one one Okay, cool. So Algorand, I think they launched just this past summer and we were in talks with Algorand since about, uh, May of last year. So, oh, oh my gosh, it's been like a year now. And um, Algorand was founded in 1997 by uh, Silvio. Um, <laughs> his last name, I don't want to butcher his last name, but he was a Turing winner and he's been an MIT prof since 1983. And he's, he's invented all these like zero proof knowledge works and stuff like that. So a lot of things in cryptography, he's actually co-invented. And he went off as a professor and he founded Algorand and the name Algorand is is a blend of um, algorithmic, al- uh, algor- um, Algorand, um, random, and uh, al- uh, I'm so tongue tied. Right Algorithm now. and random, I suppose, right? Yes, there you go. There That's it is. It. <laughs> yeah, and um, you know they went off and and like professors normally don't do that, so he risked a lot to do it, and they did a proof of stake chain, and they were very aggressive or not aggressive, I guess, really hardworking in getting the right partners and enterprises on, and they're a public blockchain, and, you know, they actually have, um, they're providing the technology for the Marshall Islands um, central bank digital currency, which would be the first one in the world. Wow. Yeah. And uh, they have a very, very strong team executives. They have a massive brain, brain trust. And what was really appealing to these guys was not only were they actively pursuing us, was that we're such a loon shot. I mean, you talked about like, you know, copycat products or well, projects were really not that. I mean, we are, in fact, before Libra came out, anyone that I would explain this to, they'd be like, what's a reserve currency? You know, the social impact thing, that's nice, but what's financial inclusion? And what do you mean banking the unbanked? Doesn't people like really have bank accounts? And if they don't, do they really need one? I mean, like no one 
uh, on this side of the Pacific had any idea about what financial inclusion or a banking the bank was until like Libra came out. But Algorand, they did. And I mean, they were really, they really embraced this as a loon shot because I think for, in some respects, they're a loon shot as well. And they recently came out with their um, Algorand 2.0, which basically allowed them to do, basically allowed you to really tokenize assets extremely quickly. It's it's on a command line function. It's not a kind of, they have a smart contract set up as well called Teal, but it's, it's really limited. And um, the reason and the rationale behind that was that unlike Ethereum smart contracts, they wanted to have a very more narrow kind of uh, point of exposures. So they, you know, it was kind of very clear, you know, what were, would be the consequences of you know these smart contracts and kind of focused. And so once they launched, we were basically the first uh, what they call uh, Algorand standard assets uh, launch. It's like you could think about like equivalent to an ERC twenty token almost um, on their network, and we're the first ones to list. And then um, USDT came on uh, shortly thereafter, and you know now. Algorand is kind of really in that middle of that discussion of providing technology and to like the central um, bank digital currency field, as well as, you know, different enterprises and another partner of ours, uh, Republic, which is crowdsource uh, funding for high tech projects. I mean, they've signed on uh, to go on to the Algorand chain as well for, uh, I believe, a securities offering, securities token offering. So, yeah, they're great. They're based out in Boston in Back Bay, they, and uh, they have a full team going. And I would say no one has accomplished as much as they have accomplished in, in the short period of time in terms of being really enterprise-focused. So, and they're, they're really strongly backed as well. That's really fascinating. Um, I knew a little bit about Algorand, but that was a tremendous breakdown. And I had no idea that they already had that much adoption and stuff like that. We've actually um, had the uh, founder... Uh, Republic on the podcast, Kendrick before, yep. a phenomenal guy. Uh, if you haven't gone to republic.co to check out the different equities that anyone can invest in right now, I'd say that would be the yin to uh, Messi's yang. If you want to get involved yeah. in early stage equities, you can go to republic.co and check out that platform. Absolutely phenomenal what they're doing over there. I know Bryce and I are going to give a much deeper dive into Algorand here in the near future. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. Absolutely. Now let's and let's talk about the token you built on it, ARCC. Is this a speculative asset or is it backed by anything? Like what actually gives this thing value? Okay, so I'm super old school. I'm like 45 years old, and I read the Bitcoin white paper like I think 30 times, right? And then I finally got it probably around the 25th time or something like that. Uh, but what was really clear to me was that Bitcoin really had this utility that the more people were on this decentralized network, the greater the security was, uh, you know, and the more the game theory really kicked in. And, you know, creating a currency, if you're a country, is really difficult. Creating a cryptocurrency looks like it's easy technically, but conceptually, it's even three times more difficult because you're not a sovereign country. You know, you're a bunch of individuals coming together and you're creating it. And so I am not as smart as Satoshi Nakamoto and I am not anywhere as smart as even any of these pioneers like Silvio, but I am a strategist. And for me, you know, you always want to look at the low hanging fruit that, that has optionality. And then with that optionality, kind of move on to the next step. 
So when I looked at this entire idea of cryptocurrencies and what, how it could benefit, the biggest problem I could think of was the emerging market problem and that kind of economic development thing. I thought, if this is going to act as an incentive for a decentralized network, it has to have value right off the bat, other than just the value you get from participating in a decentralized network. So we backed it. We backed it with 700,000 U.S. of uh, U.S. high-tech uh, companies, startups, just like Republic. And this is how I actually met Republic. I actually, we actually invested in a, a 3D rocket ship printing company yeah, called Relativity <laughs> with, alongside with the Republic. And we added it to our um, kind of base of assets. And then in our portfolio- Hold on, hold we, on, hold on. Did you say yeah. 3D printed rocket ships? Yeah, Relativity. It's cool. I met the founder. Um, they followed them, I think, from Y Combinator, but the head of the guy is the ex-head of Bezos's uh, uh, Blue Origin outfit. What? Um, he was head of the 3D printing division. Yeah, but he went off and he says, "Okay, well, I want to print the whole thing, um, you know, whatever." And he he makes the smaller rockets, but he literally 3D prints the whole thing. And what's different about it is that in Tesla or in uh, the other rocket ship companies like Jeff's. I shouldn't say Jeff, well, Mr. Bezos is whatever uh, company. They they print 3D parts, but they don't print the whole thing. And it's a kind of entirely different kind of value proposition, right? Um, okay, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Back, no, 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 to, back cool. to the amazing basket of assets you have here. Yeah. Continue then, rattling uh, them off. Yeah, and then we basically uh, bought a ton of Bitcoin, not a ton, but um, enough. And then we put them into like, uh, Bitcoin funds, uh, BNB, uh, Binance Coin, and um, we have about um, let's say about two two point five two point six million of algos and about a million of Bitcoin. So there's so, a stable coin that's issued uh, backed by all these assets, right? Yeah, so it's not really a stable coin. It's a reserve coin. And I think what the difference is that a stable coin, it wants to maintain a stable value. And so you had basis and you have all these other uh, Terra who are trying to create a stable value. We're not trying to create a stable value. We're just trying to um, create the most robust uh, reserve we can. And what I mean by that is that if you're not from America, you will know this. But if you're from America, you have no idea what a reserve currency is because the U.S. dollar is the world's reserve currency. I mean, you can't get another piece of currency that is more stable or more robust in a time of crisis than the U.S. dollar, except for gold, right? And, and so, like, let's say in, in Singapore or in South Korea, where I've worked and spent, uh, you know, majority of my work life in, when there is, um, let's give an example of, of South Korea, we're basically a total export country. That's it. We're like whatever, fifty million people uh, packed in the size of like half the size of Vermont or like whatever and or above the size of Vermont and all we do is export and when there's like a a world uh lack of demand for our products the Korean one starts to drop like like crazy right and in order for us to keep the Korean one up we hold US dollars or yen or euros in a reserve that we use to we use to buy the Korean one back from the market and keep the price up Right. Um, and the whole thing about that strategy is that if you hold enough in your reserves and people know that you are the last buyer resort, buyer of last resort, then um, in terms of people putting sell pressure down on your national currency, 
um, it's not as likely. There are a lot more easier targets to kind of go after because people, currency speculators, um, basically look for these opportunities to short currencies and, and create instability as well on the global uh, Forex market. So in the same way as a reserve currency, all we're really concerned about is the assets that are held by the reserve and the inflow of uh, assets into the reserve. And so, you know, we have a portfolio right now that's a little unbalanced, but it's basically about 80% uh, cryptocurrencies and 20% high-tech investments, which are two of the most volatile um, Real. investments possible. Yeah, I know it's not a really good start, but we're going to diversify and stabilize a little bit more. But the whole point of it is that uh, we want to create a kind of base value with the reserve to say, like, look, we're the buyer of last resort, and then this is what the reserve has, and this is the amount of coins in circulation. And then on the on the other side of that is, you know, the um, asset management, the kind of uh, microfinance projects that we're doing, such as Algolado, such as Messe, and having that inflow and that user base also contribute to the reserve. So um, anything that we raise through the uh, listing uh, through our actions in the listing or any uh, revenue that we get from Algolado or Messe or ARCC1, which is going to be our microfinance platform, 80% goes towards the reserve mm. for anything that we make. And then anything that was raised, 95%, 90 to 95% goes in the reserve. And so we're just, all we're trying to do is increase the price of the reserve and then have the listing price kind of there as, um, you know, the price discovery of of what the market feels this is worth. And then use that as our kind of incentive piece where, you know, we are giving out this ARCC for people to do the reporting as reward and for them to see, okay, look, um, you know, this is the ARCC. This is how it's mm -hmm. growing. This is how the reserve is growing. And um, this is how much it's worth for my time. Awesome. It's almost like you guys are playing the role of like the Federal Reserve too, as we're seeing as they're inflating their balance sheet by buying up debt and issuing dollars based on, you know, cash from cash flows from that debt you guys are kind of taking the opposite approach where you guys are issuing tokens based on assets not debt i think that's a really cool idea yeah and it's really interesting because you know we based our economic modeling on um how ray dalio uh looks at the market mm. and uh the way that ray dalio looks at the market is he looks at it as a series of transactions and um you know for him on a macro level, how he has made his money. So he says, and uh, well, so I've read and so I've learned from his readings uh, and his works is, you know, that, that credit debt cycle. And, right. you know, it's really great because he ties it really back down to like productivity again. And for us, um, our theory is that you can have the credit debt cycle, but technology is moving towards singularity. And what that really means is that, you have these network effects, not decentralized network effects, but just network effects in general. And when you have something like Google or Facebook and they have these network effects, they pull off so much cash, give off so much cash, you don't need credit or debt, right? Because they are so efficient in algamating all of that uh, transactions and then multiplying the value of it right. that if you were to actually yeah, create a decentralized network, um, that was able to have those transactions, but also to be very transparent in people's participation, then would you really need credit or debt, right? And that's the theory that we're kind of working on that you wouldn't. It's a lot easier said than done, obviously. I mean, I spent like now, yeah, like three years kind of going through it all. And uh, I hope that I'm not wrong, but 
I've been studying like game networks and stuff like that since grad school. So I'm pretty sure. You're pretty sure you're onto something. <laughs> yeah, hope so. Or no, been, David, yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. Like, I think that you are completely onto something. It makes so much sense. It's really the ethos of what Satoshi started. I mean, not started, I would say implemented, but yeah. again, you know, we talk about a lot of the times pizza mine here, you know, this, these were all ideas that were floating around in the sixties mm-hmm. in the seventies with Austrian economics. And then, you know, these monetary theorists talking about digital currencies and when the web, you know, for, for dozens of years. Right. And so you are, yeah. you are now taking your place, uh, you know, in the history books and there's going to be, you're standing on the shoulders of giants and you're about to have other giants stand on the shoulders of you as we build out this new world with basically one that isn't built on debt and built on issuing credit and mortgaging assets. And it's, it's a world that is now the right side up. Whereas now we're in in the current world, we're living in the upside down. It feels like sometimes when I read these headlines at the CNBC. Yeah. And you know, like towards that, I mean, like uh, COVID is such a brutal crisis, but you know, they always say, don't let a good crisis go to waste. And I think (laughs) this is really that moment, that watershed moment where you know, you have like the tide that rises all boats. And when the tide is out, you really see the cracks. And then you look at United States, which is the richest country in the world by far. And you have these cracks, like these massive cracks, small business owners, individuals um, who you could ignore before. And there needs to be a solution. And even you look at the WHO and how they've handled like when they've recognized the pandemic and so on and so forth. I myself am very critical of how they have done up to what they've done. But the fact of the matter is we didn't have information on the ground. We didn't have individuals. We had people tweeting. We had people on Facebook. But the problem with those things is that it's not coordinated into a network. It's basically you get awareness, but who's to know whether it's fake news or not fake news? Or who do you know it's like the the non-lockdown people or the lockdown people are correct? It's really difficult because you just don't have data. And you know, with a decentralized network, especially the one that we're trying to really form up, we're just trying to get the data. And we're trying to get the data where the data has the most validity. You know, for instance, I'm lucky. I had an exit, sold a fintech company, like national fintech company to Alibaba and CP Group. And CP Group, I think a lot of your listeners won't know, but they're the biggest um, conglomerate in Thailand. They're 30% bigger than Samsung Electronics. So they're humongous. Yeah. I mean, like, it's funny because I've been in New York for the last two years and we talk and then like I name drop a little bit just to like say like, you know, what I've done, whatever. And people are like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, but what, if I'm in Hong Kong or something and people are like, wow, oh my God, you know? Uh, so it's just kind of funny, but. Yeah. Um, in America, we're really in our own bubble for sure. Yeah. But you know, what's interesting all about that is that, you know, you have now, you know, people who could really, if we can create these networks, right. These decentralized networks and people could really, see what the data is on the ground. Uh, if we had another pandemic, then we would say, you know, look, we can't pinpoint exactly, you know, individuals who are doing this, but we can aggregate and say, you know, in these places where they are not taken care of, this is what's really happening. And, and going back to this point is that I'm lucky. I live in New York City. I live in the Upper East Side. We're fairly well off. When things were happening that were bad in New York, we were already in our ski uh, condo in in Vermont, and we just didn't come back. Or other people went to the Hamptons, or other people who are upper middle class, they could stock up on food. 
But for everybody else who it really was super damaging for, you didn't know how much the damage was until the infection really spread. They didn't have the right information. They had nowhere to report it. They couldn't get testing. You know, people are like getting conflicted ideas, whether they wear a mask, whether they go to the clinic or not. And, you know, this is the real exposure. And this is the real exposure of like this kind of top down kind of we know what's kind of going on approach when it's something that people don't really know what's going on. It's beyond our control. I mean, there was definitely a failure of leadership here. Being South Korean, every one of us, all the boys, all the men, we have to go for conscription. I was lucky I got exempted because I was raised abroad. And I, when I came back, I was a little bit too old and I was studying uh, my master's. But my sons, who were both born in South Korea, they have to go. And so we've always lived under this kind of threat of North Korea right above us, right? We don't really care if North Korea threatens to do a nuke because they've been threatening since like 97. So we're kind of desensitized to it. But we also had SARS uh, a few years back in early 2000s, which I was there when it happened. So when this crisis happened, we were able to react because we're not that far away from these crises um, and, you know, the physical threat of life and death. But in America and a lot of these other Western countries, I feel like it's all about globalization and commerce and growth. And even the, these massive organizations, whether it would be the IMF or even WHO, where they couldn't switch gears fast enough that their entire leadership was about the economy. And they didn't realize it's no longer about the economy. It's about life and death. And everyone's getting shut down. Like supply and demand is going down at the same time. What do we really need to do? And who really got hurt here, who didn't have any voice at all, were the disenfranchised, the marginalized. And again, not to downplay what happened in the United States, but what's happening in emerging markets is that people will start to die. People will start to riot. And, you know, something like Ecuador, something that you've seen that already. And people and children are going to go through periods of malnutrition that are going to affect them for the rest of their lives because of this event. And this is something that I want to do everything that we can to prevent this from happening or give them a voice. You know, the biggest thing about this project is that it's always been a loon shot. And, you know, we talked about how long, you know, I, I ended up doing like a, you know, whatever, 171 page white paper. And originally when I had first written it and I, I kind of sh showed people in 2017 and it was like 35 pages and they're like, oh man, Sinjin, this is too long. You're never going to be able to do anything about it. Like just split it up into this one little bit and just do it, you know, and, uh, or just do a gaming project. You know, you're, you're, you're big in gaming. You get raised like 20 million. I'm like, I don't want to do that. I want to do a project because I see the potential here of it. And for the longest time, you know, you're always looking for validation for a particular project because, you know, you want to get validated. You want to, you want to, you want people to say, Hey, that's a really good idea. And nobody would, you know, everyone was really into the market hype and stuff like that. And I'm older. So I, you know, I was a grad student when the entire internet boom was happening and, you know, I've seen mobile gaming come and go and, uh, you know, online gaming. So I've been through almost like three of these cycles and I was like, no, I'm going to build out for the long term and, you know, I'll put my money where my mouth is and, and just do it. But there are a lot of times where I'm like, oh, well, why doesn't anyone really care? And, you know, like I went through a lot of investment uh, seminars and conferences where it's like social impact and so on and so forth. And I think it's all bullshit. Honestly, I think this entire thing is lip service to like social impact and, and doing things that really make a difference. Um because there's a certain kind of social impact that people want to have. And it's, it's very PRE. It's very like packaged well, but real economic development is super messy. 
and it's super life and death and it's super hardcore because the people who are maintaining these systems of exploitation, they're powerful, evil, sociopathic people, right? Who have yes. fully, yeah, dehumanized their own population, right? And at one point, I think last year, I just realized, fuck it. You know, this is my goal. It's a worthy goal. So absolutely. Yeah. Anyone who says, uh, you know, it's too big. It's too much of a scope. Oh, it can't happen. You know, you can't do an entire economic system. Fuck it. Fuck them. Fuck you. You know, I'm just going to get it done because it, it just got to get done. You know, how long are these countries going to be emerging markets for, you know? Yeah. And that's what I meant at the very beginning when I was talking about making every moment count and really living your life like it matters. David, I want to talk to you for another several hours, but we have to say goodbye for now, but we're yeah. definitely going to bring you back on the podcast because there's so much more to talk about with what's going on in the world and your various projects. I want to say thank you for everything that you do. And I'm not going to ask you any of the closing questions. We're going to save that for part two when we bring you back on. So for awesome. now, Crypt Nation, we will see you again soon. And David, thanks again for all your time. Cheers. Thanks, Eugene. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.